the more and more to me, it seems like if we can feel beloved and then realize that our capacity to feel beloved simply needs to be extended to everybody and、mm. everything, all beings. But it can't be just pushed out, it has to be received in.、Mm. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashi Venu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. My guest today is my, my teacher and my friend, Rabbi Sheila Peltz Weinberg.、Um, Sheila had a rich and an interesting career before she entered the rabbinate. And then she was a congregational rabbi for many years. And she,、um, since, since then, has been very, very involved with the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. She's a beautiful writer who's published widely on topics such as feminism and spiritual direction, parenting, and social justice and mindfulness from a Jewish perspective. Some of her poetry that's in the Reconstructionist prayer book, Kol Hanishama, is. Um, among the most beloved entries there. And I am so happy to welcome Sheila today. Hi. Hi. Hi.、Uh, pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. I wondered if you'd start by telling us,、uh, sharing with us,、um, what, how you moved from being a congregational rabbi who was a powerful and transformative leader of your communities in Philadelphia and in Western Massachusetts. Um, and I know that both within that setting and then beyond, you got m- very deeply involved in what might be termed、uh, the, the spirituality field. And I'd, lo- I'd love it if you could share a little bit about that journey. Well,、uh, let's see. Where do we even begin? I suppose I was very much a student、um, when I was in Philadelphia and studying at the rabbinical college, but also I studied with Zalman Shachter, Shalomi. Art Green was a teacher of mine. And I was also part of the early feminist,、uh, Jewish feminist movement, Judith Plasco, deep influences on me. And、um, I guess I was always a seeker of some sort. That was, drew, drew me to the college, drew me to the rabbinate. And when I did get to Amherst in 1989,、uh, the man who was the head of the search committee, this is such an amazing story because he was the head of the search committee and he was also on the board of Insight Meditation Society.、Ah. And he said to me, You know, Amherst is a great place for you, Rabbi. It's midway between one of the most outstanding Buddhist meditation centers that we have now in this country and Kripalu. The great yoga、um, retreat center. You're midway. You're only an hour, less than an hour from each of them. Now, you would not necessarily say this to the average rabbi, and it might not necessarily be appealing, but to me, it was extremely appealing, extremely interesting. And、uh, it took me about a year or two till I actually went on retreat at Insight Meditation Society,、uh, which was part of the movement of non. Non monastic Buddhism into a secular,、um, a secular venue in, in this country, in the West, let's say, which was actually stimulated by a lot of Jews. In any case, I went on my first retreat, which was a 10 day retreat, silent retreat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was pretty much 
it was very, very difficult, mm -hmm. extremely difficult, mm -hmm. and extremely dif different than anything I'd ever experienced. Mm -hmm. All that silence. I mean, the first time I went on a silent, a 10-day retreat, I remember coming back and someone saying, were you blissed out? And I said, uh-uh. I was almost always walking through mud, and sometimes it was up to my knees, and sometimes it was up to my hips, and sometimes it was up to my chin. Right, right. It was very, very difficult. And at the very same time, I knew there was some value to mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. I experienced it as something enormously valuable that didn't exist anywhere else. And mm -hmm. I said to myself at the time, this could be taught to Jews mm. in a Jewish idiom. Oh, immediately. You knew it and you could see I it. I knew it immediately, mm. instinctively. And one thing led to the next. And eventually I met Sylvia Borstein, who was the only one of those Jews who was one of the pioneers in bringing the Buddhist stuff to America, who actually had a positive Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. completely integrated and embraced rather, rather than just born right. Jewish but left it behind. Right, right. exactly. Right. And uh, we fell in love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I was very fortunate to work with her. And we were also very fortunate that we had um, Rachel Cowan, Rabbi Rachel Cowan, Aleha Shalom, yeah. who's no longer alive, who was at that time working for the Nathan Cummings Foundation. They were looking for creative Jewish projects. And they thought, well, this might be an interesting thing. So originally when we started doing it, I was the rabbi and Sylvia was the meditation teacher. But then we started kind of floating, uh, you know, mixing and matching <laughs> our jobs. Yeah. So that that really was the beginning. And for you, yoga has been important. I know it's an important part of your practice. Has it also been a part of your Teaching, have you tried to do the harmonization between Judaism and yoga as well? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. I uh, spent a lot of time doing yoga and studied to be a yoga teacher. I did do that. And I taught yoga at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. And from time to time, I'll teach it. Say I get a, a rabbi in residence kind of a weekend. I Maybe I'll do it for the kids or the adults. But it's not my primary teaching. I, I, I'm more of a yoga practitioner mm -hmm. than a yoga teacher. That, yeah. that's for me too I mean I uh, I mean you and I've been in class together sometimes right. and for me I'm actually as a rabbi I love when, when I'm in yoga I'm so clearly the student I I, I feel mm -hmm. like it totally complements and grounds my Jewish life but part of it is that I am I am not in the front of the room I am in the middle of the room in a way that exactly I, yeah exactly me too exactly the same it's marvelous yeah <laughs> it's a real gift. It's a real gift. So, um, I mean, you what what you just described, I watched a lot of it unfold and I've benefited from a lot of it. And I know that it's just a it's just a blessing to have you as a, a teacher and to, to learn from you, whether it's in, in person or um, through your writing. And I know that this kind of um, this is always a work in, in progress. Um, so at this moment in time. What's the Torah you are currently teaching in the space where you stand? Well, I think in, in my history with teaching meditation, there has been a, you know, we can apply our um, striving energy towards anything, including spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, the striver is very alive in the mind and in the body and in the culture, the striver the striver, the judger, the one who judges, the one who separates out. And I would say the development of my teaching and my practice and my own growth as a human 
the greatest challenge and the most significant thing has been a place of softening, of actually stilling, quieting. I'm saying love, truly, to feel beloved, not to feel I need to be, you know, people always come and say, I'm not a good meditator. I can't meditate. Mm. They have such harsh standards. And yet, really, it's only about, I mean, the whole, more and more to me, it seems like if we could feel beloved and then realize that our capacity to feel beloved simply needs to be extended to everybody and Mm. everything, all beings, but it can't be just pushed out. It has to be received in. Mm. Okay, so let's just pause because I know that the striver is very, very alive in me. And so not to just to take in what you're saying and um, not just leap to the next question. Personally, that moves me very deeply. And rabbinically, I think that's really deeply true. So where would you point in Jewish sources toward that understanding and toward resources to help in that um, both reception and the extending outward? Well, certainly we could point to Torah, which talks about love quite a bit. Um, it talks about loving the rea, the neighbor or the, the other, loving yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, which implies that to the extent that one is able to love oneself, one is able to love the neighbor. Of course, loving uh, the stranger, um, which is really, really powerful. And what does that mean? And what does that mean in our time? And how, again, there's no separation between the inner work and the outer work. And that the stranger is the one who frightens us. And why do we love the stranger? Because we were strangers from our own experience. Mm -hmm. It's our experience. Um, it's really being with our experience allows us to see the other, which is amazing. Loving God. And I, I must say, you know, if you go back to um, what does that mean? Mm. But I, I really got a, a wonderful take on that. First of all, it's, in, it's the center of our prayers. It's the center of the prayer book. The morning prayer service and the evening prayer service is you were loved by a great love, eternal love. You were loved by a great love. And we move into the Shema, which means listen to unity. Listen to the oneness, the interconnection of all and everything. There is no separation between receiving and extending ultimately. There is, on an ultimate level, there's no separation. Can you hear unity? Can you hear unification? And then we move to Viahafta, you shall love. Now it says, you shall love the Lord your God. But this is an interesting take on it. You shall love eight could also mean it could it could mean you shall love the Lord, or it could also mean you shall love with God. Oh, yeah. If God is the energy of love, and you know, I beg to differ, you know, the Christians got the idea that love was Christian and Jews didn't have love, but that was a Christian idea. It was never a Jewish idea. Rabbi Akiba said. The whole Song of Songs is worth everything else in the Bible. The song of love, human and divine love. So if you can love with that um, that energy, just feel, experience the energy, and then you extend it. Who do you extend it to? You extend it to everybody. 
Hmm. You extend it, and in what positions, in what postures you just extend it. You extend it in every posture. And will you forget? Yes, of course you will forget, which is why we have reminders and we have mezuzahs and we have, you know, all the other things. Because naturally we forget. We go back into striving and fear-based. And then the whole point of practice, whatever it is, spiritual practice, is to remember that there's more possibility for love self and other. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, this is, and this comes very much out of my personal experience. You were just talking about love as being central to our prayers and embedded at the heart of our morning and our evening services. And I think sometimes about the collective nature of our liturgy, that at most Jewish prayer, the Psalms are written in individual voices, but the liturgy, so there's a lot of I not a lot, but the, but the I appears frequently in the Psalms. And in the liturgy, it's all we. It's all mm. um, ahava rabba ahavtanu. We are loved by a great love. Or, you know, again and again, it comes up a lot on high holidays of for the sins we have committed um, rather than the individual. And I had at a, at a moment of great despair in my life, uh, someone was teaching about love, and I remember thinking, okay, I can connect to it on the collective, but I don't know what would it feel like if I personally, in my individuality, actually believed that I was worthy of this and that I participated in this and this was that this was um, due to me. And I was both aware of how how far away that was for me, and also how transformative it might be. I think I was talking with a Christian colleague who said, I I've always felt secure in God's love. And I remember thinking, what must that feel like? And so any, any thoughts about how to find, yeah. find it for ourselves within yeah, the collective? Yeah, that's great. That's a great question. Well, there's a lot of different things. I mean, Jews, Judas, Jews became very, you know, head, head-oriented. Yeah, yeah. Um, post enlightenment and all of that, and, our, and oh, we have a very intense intellectual tradition, and uh, you know values that. Although, if you think about mm -hmm. Hasidism, what is the Hasidic? What does Hasidic mean? Mm -hmm. What well, I heard a translation once: Hasidus means the science of love. Mm. It's all about love. Mm. It really is. Because Chesed is from Chesed, which is, and, that, and there are a lot of different ways to translate Chesed, but one of them is love. It's love, and so is the Zohar the you know the mystical treatise of the 13th century it's it's all about love it really is and the the people who are in the zohar are constantly embracing each other they're constantly kissing each other and loving each other it's really you know mm. so there's a very profound jewish mystical strand that's number one number two oppression and trauma you know really manifest in our in us we were hated we were hated. Jews were hated. How can we feel that God loves us? Mm -hmm. And after what happened to us, you know, to us, you know, it wasn't ours personally, but it was close enough. You know, this whole epigenetic trauma and all of this, that the trauma that happened to your generation happened to you. So that's a piece of resistance as well, I think. And the the sort of libel that the, the Christians put up that, again, Jews were about just the head. We were, we were about the heart. The, head, the Jews are also about the law. The law, know, the, the law, the yeah, law, right, the right. law, the law. We're rejecting the law for the heart. Mm -hmm. um, I think in our day and age, this is really significant. And we have to, it's, it's practice. Mm -hmm. It's practice. I mean, I was teaching practices now 
that are literally about not an abstraction even of God loves us, but remembering a time when we felt loved. It just it just can be a moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It can be an experience where we knew we were seen for our absolute worth. And to feel that and to receive that into our bodies, do a lot of meditations like that, that that are actually very powerful. They don't work once and for all, like every practice, you know, you gotta keep working it. But, you know, to actually, because we are given a lot of instructions of how to remember the judgments, Mm. how to remember the one red mark on the page, Mm -hmm. but not a lot of instructions in this life about how to remember the moment that some person was kind to us. Yesterday, I went into the the store, the eyeglass store, <laughs> and I didn't have my prescription. And I said, you know, I'm not sure these glasses are. She said, do you want me to clean them for you? Mm-hmm. What a kindness. Said, what a- yeah, I know. So I said, really? Okay, sure. And she took them and she cleaned them and she gave them back to me. And she said, there might be a few scratches on them, but I did the best I could. I said, do I owe you anything? She said, no. That's mm-hmm. why we just do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I accepted that as a great kindness. Mm-hmm. I paused enough mm-hmm. to train the mind to pause and receive the moments of kindness. We don't. We are focused on the moments of rejection, mm-hmm. of critique, of criticism. I, uh, mm-hmm. I, used so to, I used to say about myself that I nurtured a garden of hurts and resentment. And that it was so clear that in my family, I was famous for, I could remember, I, I have a very good memory. Like I don't, I don't, it's not, not as good as it used to be, but I don't try. I just remember things. But the things that I could remember in crystalline detail were the hurts and the wounds. And then frankly, once I met my wife, both because I entered into this transformative relationship and because Christina's whole orientation is about positive behavioral support, and she teaches me all the time, what you put your attention on grows. So do you want to put it on the love or do you want to put it on the hurts? I, I don't. That's not the garden I nurture anymore. The irony is that my memory is not as good and my family is confounded by it. When I say I really just truly I don't remember it from a long time ago. I don't remember it from a couple of weeks ago. And there there's a there's a loss for them. And I, for me, it's only good. It is only good because I think it's I think my heart is bigger. Right. Right. You feel better. Yeah. And you have more energy to offer out more energy to offer out it's less constricted i mean in a way with the meditation with every practice the resilience practice you talk about it's about moving from constriction the narrow place you know mitzrayim i'm sure other people have talked about this but from the mitzrayim the narrow egypt place to an expansion expanded place how to support that and how to support that both through our own internal spiritual practices, but also systemically, how to how to advocate. And justice is that too. I mean, justice is advocating for more space, mm-hmm. you know, for more tolerance, for more opportunity, you know, uh, for more equality, for more e- equitable distribution. It's all about expansion. So I want to turn to a question about inner work and outer work in a second. But before then... I want to tease something out. I think I've been like presuming this, but I don't know that I've ever really spelled it out. I think what part of what you're putting forward, Shil, is that like that practice is I, a lot of times when I think about meditation, I'm thinking about stilling my mind and I'm thinking about moving out of that place of striving and into a, a more 
you know, I guess a place that kind of points toward u- unity. Yesterday, I was I was in a room where they asked how many people have have, have ever felt a sense of, I think it was like union with the universe beyond yourself. And I was one of the ones who put my hands up and, and that was significantly through some meditation work, not play other modalities, being in nature has sometimes gotten me there. Part of what I think you're saying is that by engaging in practice, we can also cultivate and even enact our values, that the, pra- the practices are means toward orienting ourselves toward what is most important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, because it's it, we have more freedom and we all, mm-hmm. also can see what is more uh, wholesome and unwholesome, what's more connecting, what's more in alignment with who we are and what we care about. And it's, you know, it's constant. It's a constant. But if we can see before we do the reactive thing, you know, part of it is to be less reactive um, and to be more responsive, you know, that's almost mm-hmm. a cliche at this yeah. point, but it's true. And we can act out of freedom. We can make choices. So yes, all the qualities are all expanded qualities, all mm-hmm. the qualities we want to inhabit, the midot in the, in the Jewish sense, you know, patience, a generosity, loving kindness, you know, they're all uh, friendliness. They're all expansions of the small constricted, frightened self yeah yeah wow um so let's talk a little bit about um you you made the leap to justice um and and other times i've heard you talk about the inner work and the outer work so let let's have that be our last chunk of conversation um we'll talk about the kind of the way that you're trying to overcome that kind of disconnection well, I have to say, this is funny. I, I recently rediscovered an essay I wrote when I decided I was thinking about becoming a rabbi. Mm-hmm. And this was in like 1976. And in it, I wrote, um, I quoted Martin Buber. I don't know if he said this or not, but at some point I thought he did, that the East breathes in and the West breathes out. Mm-hmm. And the job of the Jew is to unify the breath. Mm-hmm the inhale and the exhale. Quoted Martin Buber. I put that in my essay, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, Lately, my most, uh, I mean, I've done a lot of work, but the image of the stranger and the book I wrote, God Loves a Stranger, uh, feels like that unification for me. I started thinking about using that term, God Loves a Stranger, came up with that. I mean, it does say that in the Torah, but... Um, when the, the Syrian refugee crisis, not yeah. even the most recent refugee crisis. Yeah. And, you know, what does that mean to see the other as full human? And how would we go about treating the other? And that, that's justice. I would call that justice, yeah. advocating for justice. And how do we see, because we have so many negative presumptions about who the other is. And then the stranger, and then it also relates to seeing the stranger within because we also see ourselves with all kinds of labels and limitations and, you know, negativities. So the work of freeing up our own self image and loving ourselves, it comes back to that. Mm -hmm. It is the same work as loving the stranger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is that work. It's, it's mutually reinforcing. I mean, this is an idea. I I think now come more and more um, current, Although we also see, uh, you know, such abuse, yeah. such abuse 
but the and, abuse and, and polarization, to, yeah. The, but the abuse of other is not self aware. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not self accepting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come from self love. No, no. It, it comes, comes from, from maybe self self preservation or something. There's right, yeah, right. Yeah. A very primitive urge, mm-hmm. fear, unmitigated fear. Mm-hmm. And the spiritual work is being with the fear. Yeah, that's exactly and allowing right. it to transform. That's exactly right. And it's so interesting because we, you know, we live in this, many of us are fortunate enough to be really protected from the elements and, you know, where our ancestors, I think about it all the time, what, what it must have been like when you had to create your own light and create your own warmth. You know, we're just, we're like, we're winding down a pretty cold winter and like we suffer from that, but we suffer from that. Many of us get to go inside and turn on the heat and sit in front of the fire. And um, so to, but to realize how much the primitive self-preserving impulses continue to guide, they're still with us there. Yeah, they need to be Yeah, on some level. They just don't have to run the ship. That's what we talk about transformation and evolution, evolution of human consciousness. We haven't gotten very far. No, no, <laughs> which is why practice is always, we got to practice at it. So, uh, so I think we're going to, we're going to wind up. Is there, I mean, is there anything you, you want to add before we, we, we take our leave? Just that this is lovely to have a conversation with you. Totally lovely. Thank you so much. My great Uh, pleasure. It's fun to talk about these things. It is. It's it's wonderful. And we will post on on the website that supports the episode um, a link to your website, which talks about your publications. And we'll also post one or two of the guided meditations that you offer up to people so that people have a chance to um, make that leap from the theory into the the practice with you. I, I'm going to put in a plug for one thing, which is spiritual direction. Oh, yes. That has been a very, very important practice for me to participate in. I've been doing it almost 20 years, and that various people have brought it into the Jewish world. Um, and I now offer spiritual direction, which is such a great gift. And it is a very profound experience to be both the receiver and the giver of spiritual direction. So I just really want to advocate for that. Sure. And would you, just in a word, will you, um, I mean, I I can offer up my definition or explanation, but I would imagine for some of our listeners, they don't know what spiritual direction is. It's sitting with someone who's been trained for usually an hour a month and really sitting in listening to what is deepest in your heart. Mm. And where where mystery, where the divine, however we understand that spirit, um, the heart, the deepest heart is guiding and listening together, attending and listening together. And it's quite miraculous mm-hmm, what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, from... no agendas, no agendas. No, I know. But that but some of it is the I think the stillness and the discernment and it's the text of one person's life and heart rather than. Mm-hmm. The text of a liturgy. Um, it, right. They're really you. The, the I think the director and the directee make a space together to create this container for really extraordinary things to happen. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a, it's a blessing. Yeah. So yeah, for sure, some of what we can share online are practices that people can access via their iPhones or iPads at, at, at any time. Spiritual direction, I mean, even as it can be done remotely, it is, it's a panim el panim. It's a face-to-face and heart-to-heart encounter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It is only synchronous. It doesn't work, you know, and on, on, so. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So. Uh, well, happy happy to, to share that plug, and I know that you are a powerful and transformative spiritual director. And if there are folks who are looking for directors, we we actually help to create a training program and help to create this field in the Jewish sector at, at Reconstructing Judaism so you can be in touch and we could possibly help to connect you with folks. So yeah. um, I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Sheila Peltz-Weinberg, for our wonderful conversation on on love and on unification and on practice and spiritual direction. Um, and as I said, you can find more information uh, at hashivenu.fireside.fm, uh, also on reconstructingjudaism.org, and you may find some resources as well on ritualwell.org. I am Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening mm-hmm. to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Mm-hmm.